The title for today's sermon is Salvation in Israel. Salvation in Israel. The word salvation means deliverance. It means deliverance. Imagine with me that you are in the middle of the ocean and you find yourself drowning. You're crying out for help. You're crying out for help and there's nothing. And then finally, you take your final breath after struggling for minutes, your final breath, and you find yourself being able to, like, just, just going down to the bottom of the ocean. And at that very moment, someone jumps in, and they save you. They put you on the boat. They give you a towel to wrap around yourself, and they save you from drowning. This is what salvation is. It's deliverance. But salvation is different. It's not a physical deliverance, but it's a spiritual deliverance. You are drowning, but you're not drowning because of the water of the ocean. You're drowning because of your sins. You are crying out for help. And there's only one person who can save you, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. That he saved you from your sins. The penalty of your sins. So what we must do is repent of our sins and turn to our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Samuel chapter 11 verses 1 through 15, we see a physical deliverance. That God delivered his people from the oppression of their enemies. And ultimately, God desires to bring a sense of spiritual deliverance, which we know that Jesus will come and save his people if they would turn from their sins and place their hope and faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone. But as we're reading this passage of Scripture, don't miss this. We find that the word save and salvation is mentioned three times pertaining to God's deliverance of his people. Even Saul realized that to face the threats and danger in our lives, our hope for success is with the Lord. And we must turn to God. Even Saul said to the people in verse 13, it, the Lord is the one who brought salvation. The Lord is the one who brings deliverance. So for us here today, the application as we're noticing that God brought salvation to his people Israel. God delivered them physically. We on this side of the cross are thankful that God has delivered us spiritually. The work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, my prayer for you this morning is that you would turn to Jesus. You would turn to Jesus, that he will give you spiritual deliverance. And if you are saved, know this, that your God is fighting your battles. Your God is consistently fighting your battles. So turn to him. As we read this, we see two of the problems that Saul faced right off the bat. He's anointed to be king. He's not king yet. Eventually, at the end of this chapter, he will be made king. The people would recognize him as king. But we find two major issues here for Saul. Both threaten the nation's existence. And the first one is Israel's internal division. The tribe of Israel were divided physically. They had some in the north, some in the south, 
Most of them were in the West, and just a little bit of them, a few of them, in the East. So we see physically they were divided. But even more so morally and spiritually, they were divided as well. As a matter of fact, I need you to observe this. It was Saul's hometown in the land of Benjamin that had caused a brief civil war among the nation of Israel. So in Judges chapter 19, 20, and 21, we're given this civil war. This Levite man, his wife, his concubine, was unfaithful to him, and she left him, and she went to her father's house. So this Levite man decided he wanted his wife back, so he went with great patience and joy, went to the father-in-law's house, and pleaded with his wife and to bring his wife back. So she finally consented. They decided to go home, and as they are going home, he decided to stop in Benjamin, right? The tribe of Benjamin. So as he stopped among the tribe of Benjamin, this old Benjamite decided to give him a place to stay. So he walks into the man's house with his concubine and his servant. And while he was there, a few of the Benjamites who were drunk knocked on the door requesting for his concubine to come outside so they can have their way with her. Does that remind you of anything? Lot, right? Sodom and Gomorrah. So this is exactly what's happening in Judges chapter 19. The old man says to them, brothers, don't do this wicked thing. Why would you do this? They overpowered the old man, took the woman, raped the woman. The next day, they allow her to go, and she died. The husband finds this woman, and he realized that she is dead. Now, I'm about to get a little graphic, and this is the Bible. He cuts her body into 12 pieces and sent it to the 12 tribes of Israel. When all of Israel heard this, they were really upset. So they basically went to the Benjamites and says to the Benjamite, turn over these men. They're wicked, immoral. We need to deal with this problem. But the tribe of Benjamin decided, we're not going to turn over our brothers. And thus was the civil war. Thousands of Israelites died. Thousands of them died because of the immoral aspect of the people, the spiritual state of the people. This is the tribe that Saul is from. These are the people that belong to Saul. And now we see this very, very situation here that Saul has to face. He has to face a problem, an internal problem within the nation of Israel. Physically, they were divided. Spiritually, they are divided as well. But second, we notice right off the bat, another matter for Saul was the fact that people opposed him. He had opponents. He had people who came against him because he was selected to be king. They called him worth, or they called these men worthless fellows. So Saul has to deal with this situation. Here are two major issues. So with that said, how will Saul deal with those issues? How will God overcome all of this? How will God reign supreme? And this is what chapter 11 is all about. 
to show you how God is sovereign, how God will deliver his people and protect his people, and even use someone like Saul to bring about great deliverance. Don't forget this. Saul is not a saved man. He's not. God will use whatever means possible and whoever in your life to bring about his glory. Don't miss this. He will use whoever in your life to bring about his glory. And this is exactly what we're seeing here. So with this said, this morning, I want us to see two points from this sermon. One, Israel's problem. They have a major problem here. As Brother Biff was reading, you saw the problem. Two, or this is in verses one through four. Two, Israel's solution. Israel's solution. The solution here is to trust in God. I'll give you the answer. It's to trust in God. We see this in verses 5 through 15. With that said, join me as we pray. Father, I thank you so much for this time of worship where we can open up your word together and learn from your word. God, we are thankful that the Apostle Paul mentioned that the Old Testament was written for our good. There's so much that we can get from there. We, we're thankful that our Savior Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke mentioned that the law, the prophets, uh, all of it is about him. So we can see Jesus under every rock in the Old Testament. We, we can see the glory of Christ. We can see the power of Christ. So God, I pray that you quicken our hearts this morning. Allow us to be attentive to your word. Allow us to rely upon the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of God is moving in us. And God, if we need deliverance, that we could turn to the only one who can deliver us, and that's Jesus. Thank you for the Lord's prayer when it says to deliver us from evil. Who? Who is the one who can deliver us from evil? It is our Lord Jesus Christ. God, let us cry out to you, Father, this morning because we are in desperate need of you. And we love you and we worship you. God's people said, amen, amen. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. So with this said, we have our first point. First point here is Israel's problem. Israel's problem. You know, the Dead Sea Scroll adds a few things here, okay? And I think it's very important for us to understand extra biblical um, uh, texts. Uh, we would say they're not necessarily, they're not inspired, right? So the Bible is where we're getting our information from. Extra biblical stuff, uh, historians can really help us understand a little bit more about what's going on. But, but we are fine with what the Bible says. So here specifically, the Dead Sea Scroll adds that Naash here was oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites. This is what he was doing. He was gouging out their right eye, the whole re region across the Jordan. And they believe that 7,000 men escaped and fled to Jabesh Gilgad. And when they fled there as fugitives, they came back to uh, Nahash to ask him for a treaty. And this is where we are in the Bible. They're, they're coming to him. Whether this is authentic or not, we do know that these men are coming to this king. The Nahash is considered to be the king of the Amorite. And here specifically, they're going to him and asking for a treaty. And what is the treaty? The treaty is, hey, 
we can serve you as long as you don't oppress us. And he turns to them and he says to them, we, I need you to gouge out your right eye. <laughs> gouge it out. I mean, why, why would he ask such a thing? And there are two reasons why. First, to render them unfit for battle. In that particular time, Josephus believed that fighters would fight in a formation with interlock shield and that they would place that shield close to their, over their left eye. So the only eye they can see from is the right eye. So if you can't see from your right eye, guess what? You cannot fight. So here's they are saying to them, I, I want to render you inoperable, inoperable in the sense where you are not able to fight. And the only thing that you can do is serve. Be in the yard, be in the guard, do what I want you to do, but not fight. I don't want you to fight. But the second reason here, according to the text, is what Naash mentioned. He says, to bring disgrace to all of Israel. This is the major issue here. He has a problem with the nation of Israel. He wants to humiliate the nation of Israel. And I've said this to you multiple, multiple times. And when you read the Old Testament, you can see this. It is not of war or fight only be between a physical or two physical nations, right? Geographical nations. Like you have the Philistines and then you have the Israelites and they're just going at each other, right? And we're thinking it's just a physical thing, but it's not. It's a spiritual thing above all things. It's the God of Israel against the false gods of these people. Like we noticed earlier on in 1 Samuel, when they captured the Ark of the Covenant, the Philistines, they placed the Ark of the Covenant where? Next to Dagon, who is the God of the Philistine, the chief God of the Philistine. And what did our God do? He caused Dagon to fall before him. When you read in the Old Testament, it's really about the God of Yahweh against the false gods of the other nations. And here you have Naash, who is really trying to humiliate Israel, but specifically humiliate the God of Israel. If Israel cannot fight, if Israel cannot provide for themselves, then their God is weak. Their God is weak. We know our God will not allow that to happen. So here specifically, we have this issue. We have this issue. The Ammonites were considered to be the cousins of the Jewish people, Israel. If you remember very carefully in the book of Genesis, it was when Lot's daughter got him drunk and slept with him, and then he had children. That's where the Ammonites are from. They're from that. So they are the cousins of the Israelites from incest. Well, the Israelites basically did not like them, but they also did not like the Israelites. So as a matter of fact, we have in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 4, as the Israelites were going through the wilderness and getting passage through the wilderness, it was the Ammonites that refused to offer anything to them. As a matter of fact, later on, it mentioned that they were some of the main enemies of the Israelites. Here, Naash delighted in belittling, humiliating Jabesh Gilead. Why? Because of his hate for God 
is hate for God. And friends, we have the same thing that we see today. I like what one commentator mentioned, Ralph Davis. He writes, this ignorance, this hatred never ceased. Naash may become historical furniture, but the Ammonite mind that is to harm, destroy, and strangle God's people is always with us. And this is on two fronts for us. Let me explain myself. Come in close and don't miss this. On two fronts for us. First, for the Jewish people, the people of Israel. We see what's going on today. We see what Hamas and Iran and Iraq and every single one of them wants to do to Israel. Why do you think this is happening? Because of God's covenant with Israel. They're not saved. Most of them are not saved. But we know according to what the book of Revelation says that God will see that happen. God will bring many of them to him, to Jesus. So as we look at the news and we're seeing all of these things happening in the Middle East, is not new. This is the Ammonite mind to consistently go against the will of God to go against the people of God. And who are the people of God? And this leads us to the second application here. It is you who are saved. If you are saved today, whether you are Jew or Gentile, whatever you are, and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are his children. And because you are his children, there is a lot of oppression happening. People will come against you. Things will happen to you. Why? Simply because you are Jesus's. You belong to Jesus. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So when these people come against you, saints... Beloved, know this. It is not Felicia who is coming against you. It is not Karen, your neighbor, who is coming against you. It is not Bob, your boss, who is coming against you. It is who? Satan. This is exactly what Paul says to us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. And this is what we must understand today. So our enemy is not Naash. Our enemy is not the Philistines. Our enemies are the flesh, sin, and the devil. And we as Christians must observe this. There is a spiritual battle going on, and we need to wake up. There's spiritual warfare going on every single day in our lives, and we need to wake up. Please see this. We are spiritual beings as Christians, and we must see the warfare. So as we read this, we, we see this for us as Christians. That the Ammonite mind is constantly against us. But thanks be to Christ Jesus. Thanks for the power of Christ. Like what Richard Phillips states, to be a Christian is to realize your need 
for God's salvation. Not just forgiveness from your sins, but salvation from the dangers and malice of this world. And to call out to God to deliver you in times of fear and dread. Friends, Christians, we are called to be engaged in spiritual warfare. We are. But you know the problem is most churches conduct themselves according to business plans rather than battle plans. Do you get this? Most churches conduct themselves more like business plans. They treat you like a, 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 a consumer or a customer rather than battle plans. Like, man, this, this is a war zone here, bruh. Like, we must understand what's going on in the spiritual atmosphere, and we, we must get on our knees and, and pray, right? So what churches are doing today is just trying to get as many people as possible in the church and treat you as if they are CEOs of the church, right? This is the problem. I like what John Woodhouse noted. I love this. It's a little lengthy, but it's good. So please come in closer and listen to this brother explain this. He talks about evangelism and how we must approach evangelism, how the church must approach evangelism. He says, going to do battle is not how we like to think of our evangelistic efforts. In many ways, the business world has replaced the battlefield as a source of categories of thinking about this work. Gospel work is then not war, but um, commerce. We, we go to sell a product, not to fight a battle. We are marketers, not soldiers. We have merchandise, not weapons. We face potential customers, not enemy. We are out to expand our market share and increase our customer base, not capture, defeat, and destroy a foe. The language of war, weapons, and battle is too extreme for the way we think about evangelism. We are more like advertisers than fighters. And he is absolute. What do we fight against? We don't fight against people. And when we share the gospel with people, we know that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever that they will not see the glorious truth. So we get on our knees and we pray and we fight for the soul of that person. We pray and we fight for unity within this church. We pray and we fight for marriages. That's what we do as Christians. That's what we should do. So as we look at this, the problem there are some amazing, amazing application for us here. We fight for the right things. And look at with me the second point. Second point here is the solution. What is the solution? We see in verses 1 through 4 the problem, but what is the solution? And he gives us the solution here. It's turning to God. It's, it's God delivering. And here specifically, we see what the Israelites should have done. We, we are learning what the solution is, not because they did the right thing right off the bat. They didn't. As a matter of fact, when they went to Naash, Naash told them, well, gouge out your right eye. And any normal person would say, I will not do that. But that's not what they did. They're like, you know what? Let me think. Let me see if we can find any deliverer, and we can't find a deliverer. We'll come back so you can gouge out our eyes. Something is wrong, and what it's really showing is where these people are spiritually. What they should have done 
was turn to God like the psalmist did in Psalm 7, verses 1 through 2. Notice what the psalmist said. Oh, Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rendering it in pieces with none to deliver. He knows who delivers. It is God who delivers. Only God can deliver. That's what they should have done. But what did they do? Well, let's see if we can find a deliverer in the nation of Israel, and we'll come back. No, what they should have done was face God first on their knees, and then they can stand up and face their problems. Coming closer, and I don't want you to miss this. This is what we should do anytime we face problems in our lives. Before we face our problems standing up, we must face our God kneeling down. It's our kneeling down before God in prayer that gives us courage to stand up to face our problems. We see this consistently in the book of Psalms. Consistently. He's always facing God first before he faces men and his problems. But what are they doing here? The people of Jabesh, that's not what they're doing. What are they doing? They are wanting to turn to other people to deliver. But only God can deliver here, friends. Only God. So finally, Saul hears it. He gets to Saul's hometown. The people are weeping bitterly. And Saul finally finds out. The question here is, why are the people weeping bitterly here? It's because if you go back in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 19, I'm sorry, yeah, 19, 20, and 21, we'll understand exactly why they are weeping bitterly here. Jabesh Gilead was the only tribe, the only group of people who decided they were not going to fight against the Israelites when they had the civil war. They were not going to fight against the Benjamites. They felt sorry for them. They're like, we're not going to do it. And then what happened eventually is when the Israelites defeated the Benjamites, they took 400 virgins from Jabesh Gilead and gave it to the Benjamites. Why are they weeping bitterly? It's because they are sons and daughters. They're seeing what's happening to their people. And now they're weeping bitterly. Saul finds out about it. And then the Bible tells us something amazing happened. Saul, who's usually afraid, very fearful, it says the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. And Saul was confident. Saul had courage. Do you see it? Saul had courage. Friends, I don't want you to miss this. In the same way the Spirit of God rushed so many in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God rushed Samson, giving him supernatural strength to fight against the Philistines, rushed Gideon and Jephthah to give them victory. The Spirit of God rushing here it's not necessarily the Spirit of God living in someone, but the Spirit of God moving upon someone to accomplish God's purpose. The Spirit of God is rushing upon Saul here to give him courage so he would fight against the enemies of Israel. What a great truth here that we have. So after Saul is rushed with the Spirit, great courage, he took this oxen, 
He cuts it in 12 pieces, sends it to the Israelites, and says to them, if you do not join me and Samuel in this battle, the same will happen to your oxen. And then there is another thing that happened based on the Spirit of God. The text mentions here, if you're reading in verse, uh, I think it's in verse 15, it talks about the Spirit of God coming upon the people and the dread of the Lord was upon the people. Do you see in your Bibles? The dread of the Lord was upon the people. This is another result of the Spirit of God. That God brought a sense of dread upon the people so that they can act. This is the act of the Spirit of God. As we read in the book of Acts, we see the acts of the apostle. But really, it's the acts of the Holy Spirit. Here specifically, we see the Spirit of God moving even in the Old Testament. Giving Saul the courage that he needs to fight. Here specifically, it's bringing a sense of conviction upon the people where they can go ahead and fight. Friends, I am amazed to see how amazing this is, how God's Spirit is moving upon people to accomplish God's purpose. Let's stop. Do you see the link here between godliness and the well-being of a nation? godliness of the people, how it helps the nation altogether? Do you see it? When the people are spiritually weak, what happens? They're defeated. When the spirit, people are spiritually empowered, what happens? There is victory. And I think it's very important for us as Christians to see the same thing in our nation. This is why government should be okay with Christians, because we salty the earth. We bring about a sense of submissiveness. If they would really think about it, if they would really think about what Christians believe in, government will not persecute Christians like they are doing. Because if you really think about it, Christians are the ones who are submissive to government, submissive to rulers, submissive to their bosses, hard workers, bringing peace everywhere they go. But here specifically, I think it's important for us to observe this. Matthew Henry, this is what he mentions, don't miss this. Religion and the fear of God will make man good subjects, good soldiers, good friends to the public interests of the country. Those that fear God will make conscience of their duty to all men, particularly to their rulers. He's right. But notice with me verse 10. Therefore, the man of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. It seems to me, as I'm reading this, I'm just like, man, these people are not getting this. So here is Nahash, or Nahash, that they're wanting to give themselves over to him, gouge out my right eye, and now they're saying the same thing to Saul. They're like puppets. And friends, here, if you are a people of God, we need to be able to submit to God, to turn to God as our deliverer. This statement here and the statement above points to the fact of where they are spiritually. These people were not spiritual people at all, at all. But what lesson can we learn from this text? Notice verse 11, verse 11 of chapter 11. See for yourself. 
And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watched and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day, and those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. God brought about a great deliverance. God brought about a great deliverance. But what lesson can we learn here about the Spirit of God? Friends, here specifically, we see a vital role of the Spirit of God in the life of his people. We need the Spirit of God, don't miss this, coming closer, to equip us to do the work of the ministry. As Christians, we are dependent on the Spirit of God. Many of us will say this. When I wake up in the morning, I need my coffee for me to be alert. Well, guess what? If you're a coffee lover, you must be even more of a lover of God. Because the Spirit of God is the one that, what? Moves in us, ignites our hearts to be able to pursue the things of God. And here specifically, this is what 1 Samuel is teaching us. That we need the Spirit of God to empower us to do the work of the ministry. The great British preacher, Charles Spurgeon, every time that he would get up to his pulpit, he would say, Spirit, be with me. Spirit, be with me. Spirit, be with me. Lord, I will not preach without your Holy Spirit. We know why he was such a phenomenal preacher. Because the Spirit was with him. Oh, saints, pray. Pray for your Sunday school teachers. Pray for your pastor. Pray that whenever you open your mouth to articulate truth, that the Spirit will be with you. This is the beauty of this text here, the importance of the Holy Spirit. What is the work of the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible? He makes the Word of God mighty for salvation. In the book of Ezekiel, he tells us that. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 through 27. That God makes the Word of God mighty for salvation. This is the job of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't contradict the word. He works hand in hand with the word. And we have our charismatic brothers and sisters who will say to you, well, if you don't speak in tongues, then you're not mighty in the spirit. But I will say this to them. One who is mighty in the spirit is one who understands the work of the spirit and one who is deeply rooted in the word of God. Because the word of God and the spirit of God works together. This is how we're mighty in the Spirit. We're mighty in the Spirit by giving the Spirit His food. And what is the food of the Spirit? It is the Word of God. But what else do we have here? The Spirit of God empowers Christians for growth in holiness and grace. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. And Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. What else does the Spirit do? He bears the fruit of righteousness, peace, and joy. We see this in Romans chapter 14. We also see it in Galatians chapter 5. And friends, here is a great truth. We must say the same thing as Zerubbabel. In Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6, notice what it says. Not by might, nor by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This is what we should say on a consistent basis. I love what Philip or Richard Phillips notes. Notice what he notes here, or noted here. Whenever God's people resort to worldly scheme, 
Are you listening? Coming closer. Whenever God's people resort to worldly schemes, they begin to fail in power. Whenever God's spirit comes to believers, we are fortified in power and grace. Power and grace. What a great lesson for us from 1 Samuel, right? How are you doing in your prayer life? How are you doing in the word? How are you doing trusting the work of the spirit in your life? God has given us the spirit of God to convict us, to draw us, to lead us, to guide us. How are you doing in all of this? Because it's the spirit himself. He is the one who empowers us to do the work of the ministry. So friends, thank God for the spirit of God. Thank God as we see it in the life of the Israelites. But notice Saul's attitude. We see this in the text as well. We see immediately after this great victory, from verses 15 through 17, his attitude is different. And this is the job of the Spirit of God. He changes everything, right? So now we find that people are saying, well, where are these worthless fellows who said that Saul wasn't supposed to be king? Do you notice what Saul just did for us? But here's the problem. It wasn't Saul who did this for you. It was God who delivered you. They're like, well, let's, let's kill these guys. And Saul's response was, let us not. Let us not. Friends, what a, what a, what a great thing here for us to see as well. How the Spirit of God can soften Saul in such a way where he's not desiring to retaliate. He could have done it, but he chose not to do it. Again, it shows the power of the Spirit working mightily. So as we close, notice how Saul was rushed by the Spirit of God. Rushed by the Spirit of God. And we notice Jesus himself in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Notice very carefully what he mentions. This is our Lord speaking. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And when we place Jesus and Saul right next to each other, we see why Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Saul wasn't able to do this. He brought a sense of physical deliverance, but our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ brought upon the greatest deliverance of all, and that is the spiritual deliverance. This is why Jesus is superlatively better. He is. He is our king. He is our Lord. The question is, do you know Jesus as Lord and Savior? For those of you who don't, come, know Jesus. Turn to him. Bow your knees. Repent of your sins and trust in him. And for those of you who already know Jesus, your job, your joy is to go and share Christ with the world. Don't do it like a business plan, but do it like a battle plan. And what is the battle plan? To get on your knees and pray for people. Pray. Pray that God will save them. Your co-workers, your boss, right? Your family members. Don't give up. Pray. God, do whatever means possible to save them by your grace. A business plan would be, I just shared Christ with that person. I can go home and that's it. 
A battle plan is I share Christ with this person and it's not done. It's not done. Yes, I trust in the sovereignty of God to save the souls of men, but I have a responsibility to consistently pray for that person. But friends, I pray that we look at our evangelistic efforts more like a battle plan. With that said, join me as I pray 